Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. On Wednesday nights, we are going through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. And tonight, we are in Galatians chapter 3. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives and the, the different seasons that we find ourselves in, the, the good times and the hard times and everything in between. And Lord, we thank you for all of the moisture that you've given to us. I thank you for this group that's come out on a snowy Wednesday night and pray that you give them safe travels on, on the way home. And Lord, we do lift up Scott and Nancy to you and ask that you would really comfort them as they, they go through this very difficult time, that you would minister to them as a family, even this evening, and as they have the memorial service on Saturday, God, that you would really comfort them with your love. As we open up your word tonight, we pray that you would speak to us, or that we'd be encouraged with the message that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a picture that sits on my desk, and it's of my grandfather. Uh, I didn't know my grandfather. He passed away when I was uh, three years old, and the picture is him in North Dakota. He grew up in North Dakota, and he's 16, 17 years old, and he's standing next to his horse. And the way that the story goes, the family story that has been passed down is that he traded with the local Indians some of his goods. I don't know what he had to, to get this, this horse. And so as a kid growing up looking at this picture and hearing this story, I was thinking, wow, grandpa is quite the stud, you know, would have liked to have gotten to know him. And then also in my office, there's a piece of plywood, and it's got a bunch of pictures of my family, Amber and our four kids that she made for me, and she decoupaged these pictures. And of those two portraits, both are very clear. The picture of my grandpa is a, is a clear portrait, but then the portrait of my own family, my wife and, and my kids, it's much more personal. It, it has much more meaning uh, to me and impact to me because it's my story. It's, it's my kids. And each one of those pictures reminds me of a memory that we have together. And the message that we have in Galatians chapter 3 is a clear portrait. And the church of Galatia, which was a region, Asia Minor, so several churches, they had a clear portrait of Jesus crucified. And it wasn't just a, a picture that hangs on the wall, but their life had been impacted by the gospel, had been changed by the grace of God. They were rooted and grounded in the love of God. But we find that they're drifting from grace. They're moving away from the grace of God, replacing it with the law. There was Judaizers, those that believed that you were saved and sanctified through the law that were coming in saying, that's great that you've received Jesus, that you've received the grace of God, but now you need to go back under the law in order to know that you're saved and know that you really meant it and were sanctified. This was so intense that Paul has to write this letter of a defense of justification through faith. And that's what we find in chapter three and verse one. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Those are some strong words from the Apostle Paul. He's saying, why are you being so foolish? And who is it that has bewitched you? They've come underneath the spell, the influence of someone by charm. And the Apostle Paul is saying, why can't you see it? Why can't you understand that these are wolves in sheep's clothing that are trying to do you in, that are bringing you into that place of destruction? You're so foolish. You've been tricked. You've been bewitched. And who has 
bewitched you. And I've wondered that sometimes over the years. You have faithful believers that love the Lord and they know the word, but all of a sudden, someone gets their ear, someone gets their attention. Maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a book, it, it's an author, it's, it's a movement, but it's not biblical. And all of a sudden, they seem to have come underneath a spell. You're like, snap out of it. You know the scripture, you, you know the word. What, what are you doing departing from the gospel? I think the apostle Paul here is angry, and he's also deeply moved as a heart of a spiritual father. It's not anger in a sinful way, but it's anger in a protective way. There's a lot of emotion behind this for the Apostle Paul. You can imagine how he's feeling. And he says that you shouldn't obey the truth. We, we oftentimes talk about the non-essentials. Well, this is an essential. This is how are we saved? How are we sanctified? How do we become more like Christ? And they're not obeying the truth. They're not yielding the truth. And then here's the kicker. It says, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. So we're not talking about unbelievers. We're not talking about people that didn't know the gospel, but they clearly had an understanding of who Jesus is. And especially the picture, the portrait, is him crucified. That Jesus died for their sins, that they're saved by grace. What I appreciate about the Apostle Paul is he's dealing with the issues, he's dealing it with truth, he's dealing with it in emotion, but he's very thorough. He's going to go through this chapter and really reaffirm, reteach the importance of the grace of God, and he goes back to experience with grace. And if you're taking notes tonight, jot that down, experience with grace, it's verses 2 through 9, he goes into... review mode with the churches of Galatia of how they've received the grace of God. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul says, you know what? How were you saved? How did you receive the spirit of God in your life? Did it come through the works of the law or did it come through the hearing of faith? And of course, it was the hearing of faith. They heard of Jesus. They heard of the gospel. They heard they were saved by grace, and they responded through faith. They responded. That's how they received the Spirit of God. Think about your own conversion, your own salvation, your own trusting of Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God coming inside of you to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Did it happen because you had your act together? Did it happen because you were fulfilling the works of the law? I don't know about you, but God's story in my life, my testimony is the exact opposite. I was the furthest thing from living for Christ. Completely selfish, 100% of the time. Wanted nothing to do with the things of God. And God revealed his love to me in that state. Communicated to me, Eric, while you don't want anything to do with me, I want everything to do with you, and I died on the cross for you. But God demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How did the spirit of God come into your life? It came through faith. It didn't come through the works of the law. And he reminds them of this. He's going to ask them five questions in these verses. That's the first question. Verse three, he says, are you foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? So there's no question that they started in the spirit. Salvation was a work of the spirit in their life, but now they're trying to perfect that work through the flesh, meaning 
that I'm going to become more like Christ through the works of the law, through observing the Sabbath day, through the, the kosher diet, through the sacrificial system, trying to implement that once again. I think this is so oftentimes where we go wrong, is God's spirit does do work in us and saves us, and then we think, well, the rest is up to me. In order for me to be sanctified, which means to become more like Christ, I have to form a system of works. And a lot of times for us, it's not going back to the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, but we create our own system of law, don't we? And we say, well, I've got to do these things. And if I do them, then I'll be more like Christ. But we're taking the work of the Spirit and we're perfecting it in the flesh. The actions aren't wrong, but it's the dependency. So maybe it's devotions. Maybe it's reading our Bible. That's a good thing, right? But that can become our works, our our system of works. And we're actually relying upon our faithfulness to read the Bible instead of relying upon the Spirit of God working inside of us as we read the Scripture. See the difference? I'm not reading the Word to try to make myself be more like Christ. I'm reading the word out of a response to God's grace and asking that God's spirit would do a work in me that I can't do in and of myself. I'm trusting the spirit of God, that faith in in the, the spirit of God. A lot of times we find that churches begin as a work of the spirit. Why? Because I think everyone would agree that in order for a church to be birthed, it has to be a move of the spirit. It can't happen any other way. God, we need you to move. We're desperate for you. But then over time, as a church develops, and maybe there's some resources and there's some strategies that are put in place, not that there's anything wrong with strategies in and of themselves, but it becomes trusting in a system of works instead of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? As a church fellowship, Rocky Mountain Calvary, we could fall prey to that. Because the Lord has blessed us. The Lord has been gracious to us. But I got to tell you, we need the Spirit of God just as much as we today as we did when the church started over 25 years ago. We're dependent upon the Spirit of God. We need the, the Spirit of God. Maybe early on in your relationship with the Lord, you were very aware of the need for the Spirit of God in your life. The comfort of the Spirit, the, the help of the Spirit, the leading of, of the Spirit. But as we've grown and matured in our relationship with Christ, we've left that out. Maybe in the beginning of your marriage, the beginning of your family, there was a dependency upon the Spirit of God. God, if there's any way that I could love my wife as Christ loved the church, to to love the way you do, I need need your Spirit. But now, okay, I'm going to perfect this with the works of the flesh. Maybe those first few weeks on the job, you know, those first few weeks on the college campus, there's that dependency It seems to be we'll begin in the spirit, but then we'll take it back over and put it into our own control. And the encouragement that we get from the Apostle Paul is the way that you started is the way you need to continue. That's the message to the church of Galatia. Don't don't try to perfect the work of the spirit with the work of the flesh. How could we perfect the work of the spirit? Could we do better in the work of our flesh? But a lot of times I think this is a tough message for us because when we're succeeding at some works, then there's room for us to boast in our performance. When it's the Spirit, there's no room for boasting, amen? It's like, man, this is the Spirit. This is what God is doing. I've got to tell you, 
more and more in my life, I'm seeing the need for the work of the Spirit. I'm desiring the work of the Spirit. We need it more and more in the days that we live in. Amen? So the next question that's asked, it says, have you suffered so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? So they had suffered because of the gospel of grace. People were offended by the gospel of grace. They persecuted. And now the question is, if you give up on the gospel, if you give up on grace, you've suffered these things in vain. And this is a good message for us tonight, church. Maybe you're thinking about tossing in the towel in some area of your life. Think about what ground you've already gained. And if you throw in the towel, what will be lost? Maybe it is a difficult season in your marriage and you're thinking about tossing in the towel. What? You have 30 years together. You have 40 years together. You've got 15 months together. (laughs) You've gained some ground. You've got some traction. And the problem with divorce is you take yourself with you, right? You'll take yourself into the next marriage and you'll realize, oh man, the problem is me. I'm the one that's contributing to this. It's worth, worth fighting for. And we think of the spiritual ground by God's grace that God has given to us. Why would we give up now? If we give up now, we would lose the ground that God has given You've suffered. You've suffered for this. Why would you toss in the towel now? Verse five, therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Good question. This is present tense. This is practical in the church of Galatia, these regions of churches. Who is it that you see God is using in your midst? Do they do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And the obvious answer is the hearing of faith. I think this will really encourage us tonight, will really set you free tonight if you understand this. A lot of times we think that what is dependent upon God using our lives is how well we're doing with our own system of law. If I'm praying enough, if I'm fasting enough, if I'm righteous enough, if I'm giving enough, if I read my Bible enough, then maybe God will use me in the life of my neighbor. That's an unbeliever. In the life of my friend, in the life of my family member. Maybe if I just get all of my actions together enough, then possibly I could go on a short-term missions trip. But I couldn't go this year because... I don't have my act together. I couldn't reach out to my neighbor because they see me lose my temper. They, they, they look across the street and they, they see me blow it so I could never go over and tell them of Christ's love. I'd really love to be a youth leader in junior high. I'd really love to serve in the high school or teach the fourth graders or be a small group leader, but I, I messed up. God, God couldn't use me. And that's not the people that God uses. Not supernaturally, not a work of the Spirit. He uses people that understand that we're broken, that we're flawed, but that God's a God of grace and that he loves people. So let's take on that situation with the neighbor. You go, God, I'm gonna approach them not because I am having a good day spiritually, not because I have my act together, but Lord, I know that you love them. And I know that you wanna communicate your love to them. I know that you want me to be a part of that plan, so I'm gonna reach out right now and I'm gonna begin to to love on them. I'm gonna get involved in their life. 
I'm going to speak to them about the things of Christ. It's the hearing of faith. We get this mixed up somewhere. Lord, I'm not worthy to go teach the fourth graders. I'm not worthy to get up here and, and teach a Bible study, but I'm trusting that you're good and that you're gonna work because of your love for people. This is my only hope as a pastor, I gotta tell you. If I got up here week after week and, and taught God's word based on my performance spiritually, I would be the most depressed person on the planet. And the enemy loves to try to use that in, in my life. I get up and share the word of God because of a confidence in the blood of Jesus, of who God is, that he loves you, that he's faithful to his word, that he's, he's gracious and step forward and, and move in that. And then if I get my eyes off of that, I start thinking, well, this is gonna be a good Bible study because I've prepared a lot. I've, I've studied a lot. I've got a good illustration here or a corny joke here. That's, that's really gonna make the difference in this this study, or if I can articulate it this way, or read the words just perfectly that way, and technically it might have been a good sermon, but there was something missing. What was it? It was faith. It was faith that the Spirit of God. I believe that we really live in some interesting times, some difficult times, some dark times, and please hear me on this, but I believe that God is wanting to raise up people that believe Galatians 3, that believe that God's ready to pour out his spirit, to do works of miracles, to point people to Jesus Christ, that are saying, God, I don't deserve to be used by you, but I know that you love people. I know that you don't want any to perish. So God, instead of moving away from this mess, I'm gonna move into this mess because I wanna take the love of Jesus Christ into this craziness at work, into the craziness of my street into the craziness of the political scene that we're in and asking that you would point people to Jesus Christ. And I'm praying for an awakening of God's love, that we would realize God's love afresh, that we'd be excited to share the love of God. Tonight, if that's all that we get, if this is as far as we get, if we don't get through the whole chapter tonight and we really hear this, that how does God do a work of the Spirit Does it come through works or does it come through the hearing of faith? It comes through the hearing of faith. So Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm gonna step out. I'm gonna watch you work and watch you bring people to Christ and share your love with Christ. Verse six, just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So the example is Abraham. Abraham believed God and God put it to his account that it was righteousness. This is Genesis 15, verse six. God comes to Abraham and says, you're gonna have descendants as many as the stars. Look up, count the stars, Abraham. That's as many descendants that you're gonna have. As the sand of the sea, that's as many kids as you're gonna have. And Abraham's going, well, this is great because Sarah and I, we don't have one kid together. (laughs) What a time for doubt. What a time for God, did you get your wires crossed? Were you communicating to the right person? That's not how Abraham responded. He believed. He goes, okay, God, you said it. I don't know how you're gonna do it, but I trust you're faithful. Romans tells us that Abraham didn't even consider his own weakness. I'm not even a part of the equation. God, if you wanna do this, you can do it in spite of me. He, He was too old. Sarah was too old, but he believed God. God honored that faith and then accounted it to him as righteousness. 
Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. This would speak volumes as they're dealing with the Judaizers who are saying, you've got to go back under the law if you want to be the son of Abraham. They looked up to Abraham. But scripture says to be a son of Abraham means to walk in the same footsteps of faith. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all of the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So all of the nations are gonna be blessed through, through Abraham as we choose to walk in faith just like Abraham. So that's the experience with grace. And now we look at the effects of the law. The second thing to consider, verses 10 through 14, what are the effects of the law? For as many are as of works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue in all of the things that are written in the books of the law to do them. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 27. This is the thing with the law, is you've got to keep all of it. All of it. And if you don't keep all of it, 100%, then you're cursed. From time to time, I will meet people that are just like the adversaries to the churches of Galatia, and they'll say, I can't believe you guys have service on Sunday morning at Rocky Mountain Calvary. And if you really wanted to get serious about Christ, you need to observe the Sabbath day in a very strict manner. I heard at your men's gathering that you guys served some bacon on, those, on the hamburgers. And you, you know, if you're serious about Christ, you, you do that. And I'd say, well, really, so, so you're trying to keep all the law. So let's go through the 613 laws and see how you're doing. You can't fulfill it. it, it there's no way you're, you're going to fall short. And if you fall short in one, then you come under the whole entire curse. In verse 11, it says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. Justification means to be declared righteous by God. So the law doesn't declare anybody righteous, doesn't make anybody righteous. The only way that we're righteous is through faith. Many of you know that tonight, but we need to be reaffirmed in that. What makes me righteous is not my works. What makes me righteous is my faith in Jesus Christ. Are works important? Yes. It shows a transformed life. It shows love to Jesus Christ, but it doesn't save you. The just shall live by faith. This is quoting Habakkuk 2, verse 4. We find it several times in the New Testament. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, have become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So I'm cursed because I broke the law. Jesus became a curse for me, he who knew no sin became sin, took the punishment for sin from the Father so that I could receive justification, so that I could be declared righteous, so that I could freely receive the Spirit of God in my life and receive promise of the Spirit. So the effects of the law, it brings curse. 
So let me speak to your heart tonight. Do you have a workspace relationship with God? If you do, it's going to result in curse. Not in this that, well, God's disappointed in you and God speaks judgment in you, but it's just a terrible way to live. Because when you're doing good, when I'm doing good, we're prideful. Eventually, we're not going to do good, and then we're going to feel condemned. So we're constantly riding this roller coaster of guilt and shame and pride and up and down, trying to earn and deserve God's favor. Inside of friendship and inside of a marriage, if it's works-based, that's, it's lousy, isn't it? I've got to do all of these things to earn affection and to earn love. And it's wonderful if you can have an atmosphere of accepting one another, uh, unconditional love. And with the Lord to know, I don't have to try to earn brownie points with the Lord. So freeing, completely freeing. I grew up in a Christian family. I, I went to Christian school. I was born on a Sunday, was in church the next Sunday, never went to a public school, got out of Christian school, went to Bible college, came on staff here at Rocky Mountain Calvary when I was 21. Me and Leave It to Beaver have a lot in common, <laughs> you know. But one of the things that happens a lot of times when you grow up in a Christian home and in a Christian school is you get a real works-based relationship of God. And because what's placed on a lot of times well-intending, and it wasn't even necessarily my parents that, that, that placed this on me, was this idea, if I do all of these things, then God loves me. You know, if I don't cuss, then God loves me. If I don't go to a bad movie, then God loves me. And if I know the Bible verse, then God really loves me. Because you watch people, you know, you, you, I can remember walking into church and we had Sunday school, then we went into big church and people would ask me, so, so what was the, the Bible verse from, from Sunday school? And if you didn't know it, oh man, they were disappointed in you. You could see it all over their body language, like there's Eric again, you know, messing around during Sunday school. And then if you came in and you said it, you could recite it, then it was like, jumping jacks way to go you did great and so that felt good so I'm going to memorize the verses you know I, I'm going to know where the book of Matthew is I'm, I'm going to get get this down and before long you start to think well that must how it is with God and it's not if you have a workspace relationship with the Lord it's going to bring cursing it's going to it's going to be a roller coaster but if it's confident in the grace of Jesus Christ it's going to bring blessing into our lives Let's look at the changeless promise. The third thing that we look at is the permanence of faith. The permanence of faith, the covenant that doesn't change. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. So if there was a covenant, it was immutable. It was a legal binding contract that you couldn't change. It's just like that agreement that you agreed to with that app that you downloaded onto your phone, right? Who reads all of that? You know, who has time? What did I agree to anyway? Well, it was immutable, you know? And so this is showing us how much more so is God's covenant permanent. In verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, 
It is of no longer promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What in the world is Paul talking about? (laughs) God gave a covenant to Abraham 430 years before the law was given. And it was a covenant that was based on grace. And he said, through your seed, singular, pointing to Christ, that ultimately Christ would come through the seed of Abraham. Through Christ, the nation of the world would be blessed. Write down Genesis 15, go back and look at it. But God cut open an animal. There was an animal that was, was cut open. And a covenant in Abraham's time is you would walk across together this cut open dead animal and you would shake in the middle and the message was clear is we are deathly serious about this commitment. And if anyone breaks this commitment, then this contract is to be taken with utmost seriousness. So Abraham is waiting and waiting to to cross with God through this open animal. Eventually, Abraham goes to sleep. And while he's asleep, God crosses through, wakes up Abraham, and says, this is what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. It was a covenant that was based on grace through faith, not through the works of the law. It was one-sided, meaning that it was based on God's commitment. The covenant that God gave to Moses was based on works that says, if you do this, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. And so the point that Paul's bringing up is, is grace was in pre-existence before the law. So those that were saying, well, you've got to go back under the law, because that's what God gave to us first, then here's Paul's point. No, he gave grace first. Grace was 430 years prior to the law ever given. Does that make sense? So it's that permanence of faith. So now we look at the purpose of the law. What purpose then does the law serve? So if we're not saved through the law, if God doesn't bless us through the law, well, what, what was the point? It was added because of transgressions till the seed, which is Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the angels by the hand of the mediator. So the the need for the law was because of sin, because of transgressors. And this is the case today, isn't it? If you've got a middle school and a high school, and there's things that are getting out of hand, what do you do? You come up with some rules to deal with the transgressions that are taking place. If there's problems in the city, if if there was a bunch of fatalities on I-25 because of the speed limit being 75, eventually it would probably change. That's, that's the way that the law works. The, the law was added because of transgression. The law was given by God. In verse 30, now a mediator doesn't mediate for one only, but God is one. So God is singular, but he mediates for all. Is the law then against the promise of God? So is the law contrary to grace or against the the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been given by the law. So if the law could save us, then why would we need Christ? There's no need for Christ if the law could save us, but the law could never, never do that. We need to be reminded it as we invest in others and as we disciple, the law is not going to save them. Don't, don't lay laws on people. Bring people into relationship with Jesus Christ. Encourage them to walk with Christ. Encourage them to live a holy life because they desire intimacy with Christ. See the difference? Say someone gets saved, we don't want to just present to them, okay, now here's a bunch of rules. Here's a bunch of regulations. Welcome to the family of God. Here's the rule book, you know. 
oh man, so good that you're forgiven. It's so, so good that you're the child of God. You're the son of God. You're the, the daughter of God. This is God's love letter to you. And your father has a way that he wants you to live your life because he wants you to experience life to the fullest, abundant life. See the difference? It's relationship instead of, of rules. The law doesn't save. In verse 22, but the scripture had confined all under sin. So that's how the scripture has given us the verdict to all that we're under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. How can the scripture, with such confidence, give us the verdict of sin? Because of the law. And that's part of the purpose of the law. How would we know that we're liars without the law defining what a lie is? How do we know that we are in spiritual idolatry without the law laying that out? How would we know that it's wrong to disobey our parents if the law had not laid that out? We wouldn't get that from society today. You know, we would never understand that that's wrong, but we get into God's word and we realize, oh man, I am a sinner. I've been disobedient uh, to my parents. And so the scriptures told us that we're all under sin so that we would believe in Christ and we would trust that free gift that was given. But before faith came, we were kept under the guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. So there is an aspect with laws that it does guard, it does protect. So part of the purpose of the law was to guard us and to protect us until the coming of Christ. However, in verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the whole purpose, God in his infinite wisdom, the reason that he gave us the law is so that it would drive us, would be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Our tendency would be to go to the Lord. Why did you send your son? If you would have just given us some rules, we would have kept those rules perfectly and you wouldn't have had to give your son on the cross. God knows our hearts. And so he says, here's the rules. Israel failed under the law. We fail under the law. And it brings us to a place of saying, God, I'm guilty before you. I'm ready to receive your grace. But notice in verse 25, after we've come to faith, that there is no need for the tutor. You're not under the tutor anymore. You're not under the law, you're under grace. And grace does far more than the law could ever do. I love it when my kids ditch the training wheels. It's such an exciting time. They usually say, hey, dad, take the training wheels off. Let's try this, okay. And you're holding the seat, holding the seat. I'll never forget teaching Hannah, our oldest, to ride a bike. She's five years old, and I'm holding on to the seat, and she looks over at me with both of her hands on the handlebars. She says, Dad, I got this. It's like, wow, I let go, and she had it, you know? I can just picture her going into adulthood going, Dad, I got this. Oh, you know, (laughs) there you go, right? And it was a wonderful moment. And maybe tonight the Holy Spirit's saying, take off the training wheels. You feel like God loves you less if you don't come to a Wednesday night Bible study? If you miss your devotions, do you feel condemned? You didn't tithe? You missed an opportunity to share with someone who wasn't a believer? Oh man, the Lord doesn't love me. 
God's not going to use me. I lost my temper today. Are those things important? Yes. But it's not what motivates us. It's not what drives us. Something far better drives us, and it's our position, the position of believers. It's our last point tonight, position of believers. It's sonship, it's daughtership. For you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Allow that to sink in for just a moment. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're the full-on son or daughter of God. He's your father. He's your dad. In order to be your dad, he gave his son. He adopted you. He chose you. I have a little sister who's adopted. She's nine years younger than me. My parents chose her out of a whole stack of kids from the state of Oregon. When I was born, it was like, well, there's no choice. Here he is. We can't leave him, so we better take him. And they took me home, right? But I remember my parents going through all the process to adopt and looking at all these pictures of kids and praying about it. And man, there's something powerful in that, in the love of that. God chose you to be his son. He chose you to be his daughter. And that moves us, that motivates us. Relationship, position, way more than rules. I think of my own relationship with my dad. Sure, there was a time growing up where it was rules and it was fear. You know, I, I didn't want the consequences that came with disobedience. But as I got older, it changed. I think it, it does a lot of times in the, in the hearts of kids. I always wanted to be able to take my dad on and just, you know, be able to give him a good one and show him who was boss, right? And then by the time I was actually big enough to actually accomplish that, that's the last thing I ever wanted to do. And maybe early on in our relationship with the Lord, we're like, oh, I don't want to sin because the consequences are coming. I don't want the consequences. And it's more fear-based, but then eventually, hopefully, it moves more into the heart of the Father, and we go, man, I know the consequences will come. I've learned that, that sin hurts, but I want to be close to my Father. I don't want to hurt the heart of my Father. And that's where we see this all come together, is the sonship, is the daughtership, the position that we have with the Lord. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. You have a new identity in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, the position that we have in Christ. Some have looked at this verse and said, because of the unity that we have in our position of Christ, then the roles are no longer important. That roles inside of marriage and roles inside of church, church leadership, that there's, there is no male, there is no, no female. And this isn't the canceling out of roles. And we know that from scripture. If we study Genesis to Revelation, we know that God has given us roles, but inside of those roles, we're equal in Christ. Inside of the Trinity, there was distinct roles between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There was authority that was placed there, but there was also unity that was placed there. Is Jesus God? Absolutely. Is the Holy Spirit God? Absolutely. Is the Father God? Absolutely. But is the Father the one who is in charge inside of the Trinity? Absolutely. Jesus makes that clear. The Holy Spirit makes that clear. So this unity that we have in Christ, it doesn't cancel out the roles, but it shows the equality that we have in Christ. 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So notice that in verse 29, you are Christ. You're his possession. He chose you. He, he adopted you. Then you're Abraham's seed. You're the fulfillment of that promise. And you have the, the spirit of God. As I was thinking about this section of scripture, I was like, what was going on in these churches, plural, churches, plural, that they would want to leave the gospel, that they would want to go back to the law, that they would want to trust in their own works. They must have been going through tremendous pressure. So I want you to examine your own heart tonight. I want to examine my heart as I come to the communion table. Is, do we have a workspace relationship with God? If we were honest, have we fallen back under some system of the law? Are we enjoying our position in Christ? Are we enjoying the grace of God? Are we allowing the grace of God to impact us and move us? That's a great question to wrestle through in communion. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, I know so many times I've, I've fallen to this trap of having it be about works and rules and regulations instead of a relationship. And we pray as we move into communion that we would enjoy you we would enjoy the fact that you've given your son for us, that we'd be moved by relationship, we'd be moved by grace. In Jesus' name, amen.